Christmas is, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Christmas is less than a week away. It seems like it came out of nowhere, like every year just kind of so often sneaks up on us. I remember uh, several years ago when Maylee was, our daughter was really little and um, we were, uh, we, Marcy and I wanted to put the Christmas tree up and sometimes it's easier to put the Christmas tree up and we, we still want her to decorate it, help decorate it, but sometimes it's just easier to put the Christmas tree up when, uh, you know, when your kids are napping, right? You know? And, uh, so we were putting the Christmas tree up and Maylee was napping and, uh, this was like in early December. So, um, cause we try and get ours up at a decent time. But, uh, so anyway, she, she laid down for her nap and, and, you know, a couple hours later she woke up and, groggily we kind of brought her downstairs and she saw the christmas tree and she kind of groggily said it's christmas and we had to explain to her no honey it's not christmas yet today is not christmas and certainly uh, today is not christmas for us either but it certainly is quickly approaching and it's kind of weird to think that christmas could sneak up on us because christmas is everywhere it's all around us you couldn't miss it if you wanted to and yet this year, like pretty much every other year, many people still will. And while they may not miss the day or the event of Christmas, more than likely they will miss the meaning and the magnitude of what it's all about. They will likely miss, as we so often say, the reason for the season. In fact, I think it's probably safe to say that most people, including many Christians, miss the true wonder of Christmas. And I don't want us to be in that number. And so heading into Christmas, zooming into Christmas at this point, we have been in the midst of a series throughout the month of December called Christmas is for Who? And we're basically talking about what the title suggests, Who Christmas Is is for. In the first week, we looked not so much about who Christmas is for, but really who Christmas is about, because Christmas is all about who, and that who being Jesus. And we looked at a passage from Philippians chapter 2 to kind of flesh that out. It's a wonderful passage, one of my favorite passages, and if you didn't hear that message or any other of the, uh, or any of the last two messages, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them. But then we moved last week from the who to then the And we talked about and looked at some of the interesting inclusions in Jesus's family tree from the genealogy that Matthew gives us uh, in Matthew chapter one. And it's not really the names and the people that you would expect. In fact, the names that Matthew includes are probably the ones that you would expect Matthew to leave out. But he includes them because they were the who's of Jesus's history. And we made the point that God welcomes the who's, those that may not typically make it into the family records. And as I said last week, in every family tree, there are some squirrels. And as I also said, if you don't know who the squirrel is, then that probably means that you are the squirrel. But take heart, because if you've ever felt like the squirrel, then today's message is for you. And even if you haven't felt like the squirrel, although I guess most of us probably have at one time or another, but even if you haven't, uh, I think there's probably still something in here for you today as well. But for anyone who has ever felt unappreciated, unnoticed, uninvited, unwanted, whoever you are, God has a word for you today. And one of the places you can find it is right here. Uh, This is what is called Cleopatra's Needle, which is found on the banks of the Thames River 
in London, England. It was made 3,500 years ago in Egypt as a gift for a pharaoh. But like many other Egyptian artifacts, it was transported to England and placed there in September 12th of night, or 1878. And at the base of the needle, the British put a time capsule. And in that time capsule, at the base of Cleopatra's needle uh, on the Thames River there in, in London, there are some interesting items. There's some coins. There's a baby's bottle, some children's toys, a razor, some pictures of what were to be considered the most beautiful women of, of that time there in England, an almanac, a map of London, a picture, a portrait of Queen Victoria, uh, a few other things along with that. But along with those things, there's also one sentence in that time capsule that they thought was so important that they translated it into 215 different languages. And this is that sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Of course, many of you know those words were said by Jesus and recorded by the Apostle John in John 3, verse 16. But the question is, why did they choose that verse? Well, I can't really say for sure, but here's what I will say. Everybody must choose a narrative to live by, a worldview that's going to shape and inform your values and your sense of meaning. Now, if God's love is not that narrative, and if God's character and even God's existence is called into question, then where do you find your sense of purpose and value and worth? Because the popular narrative of our day is that we're all just evolved pond scum, that we have no real sense of coming from someone or going to someone. And so if we're nothing more than cosmic impersonal accidents, then what really matters, including us? You see, it's kind of hypocritical to claim that there is no God and that we're just evolved amoebas and then say that there's some inherent dignity within us and that we should all subscribe or ascribe to some sense of morality that has no real source. There's a well-known physicist by the name of Lawrence Krauss, who's also a very staunch atheist, but at least he has the guts and the sense to admit what the logical conclusion of that worldview and that narrative is. He writes this, human beings are just a bit of pollution. If you got rid of us, then the universe would be largely the same. We are completely irrelevant. Now, those words may, dis may disturb you, but in reality, that's the truth, if that's your worldview. If that's the narrative that we're just all cosmic accidents, then we don't really matter. And I think the reason John 3.16 has resonated throughout the years and throughout the centuries is because it's, it's offering a different narrative. It's saying we do have worth. We do have a purpose and we do have future. That's why I would contend that John 3.16 is perhaps the best verse ever, because in just a few words, it says best what we most need to hear, whoever you are. It says that God's love, first of all, will do whatever 
it takes. You see, we can look at the expanse of the universe and know that the maker of it is powerful. And we can look at the the order of creation and, 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 and how things are designed and we can know that the maker of it is wise. But what's he like? What's his heart like? Can we know his heart? Because love has to be shown in order to be known. And so in a little town called Bethlehem, just a little spot on the map that no one ever noticed, God showed up. And he showed up in person, wrapped in flesh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And that's important. The Greek word, therefore, one and only, is the word monogenes, monogenes, I should say. You can say it either way, but monogenes. And it speaks to the unparalleled relationship between God and Jesus and why this gift is so significant. Now, it is true that that we are all God's creation. In that sense, we are all God's children. And even more than that, it's true that when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we give our lives to God, we surrender to him, that we become his adopted children through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. But there's also a sense in which Jesus is different. Monogenes is the combination of two Greek words, mono, which means one or singular, and the word genes or genos, uh, which means uh, basically offspring. And so it's where we get the word um, genetics, basically. Genos is where we get the word genetics. In other words, only one person has ever walked the face of this earth with God's DNA, with God's genetic makeup. Only one person, only one human being has also contained the divine essence. The Apostle John put it this way in John chapter 1, verse 14, when he said, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, Monogenes, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And a few verses later, he writes in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Monogenes, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made himself known. God so loved that he was so willing to do whatever it takes to make himself known. And so he became like us so that he could show us how much he loves us. That's what happened at Bethlehem. God was willing to do whatever it takes. Only divine wisdom could have birthed such an answer but only divine love would allow such an answer to be birthed. In fact, the only object that communicates that God loves us more than a manger was also made of wood. John uses that word another time, monogenes, this time in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, where he says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son, monogenes, into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, why did he come? Why did Jesus come? And this is important because a lot of people want to embrace the coming of Jesus, but they ignore the entire reason for which he came. He didn't just do whatever it took. His love was willing to go wherever he needed to go. That's what John 3.16 is saying. You see, John 3.16 
has a context. And to explain it, we need to go back to a story from the Old Testament that's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And it's kind of an interesting and strange story. But in the story, the, the context of the story is that the children of Israel have left the slavery that they were in in Egypt. And they are headed toward the promised land that God had prepared for them. And as they often did, they started complaining. And so God allowed some venomous snakes that lived in that area to bite the people and the people were dying. And so the people said to Moses, do something, save us, you know, go to God on our behalf. What, what, what can we do? And here's what God told Moses. He said, make a brass pole and put an image of a snake on top of that pole. And if the people will look at that pole, they won't die. Now I'm thinking that's the answer. I mean, why don't you just kill the snakes, right? But you see, God is, is always doing this. God is always calling us to put our wisdom and our judgment and our effort aside and to trust his plan, even when it doesn't make sense to us. He called a 99-year-old man to trust that an 89-year-old woman would get pregnant. He called an army of his people to trust that marching around a wall, a, a city with walls and blowing trumpets and shouting would cause that wall to fall down. You see, God is saying, you can't save yourself. You're not smart enough. You can't do enough. You're going to have to trust my plan. Now, when Jesus spoke those words in John 3, 16, he was speaking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Jew. He knew all of those stories from the Old Testament quite well, including that one from Numbers chapter 21. And so listen to the two verses right before that verse in John 3, 16, verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Again, if you're going to celebrate the coming of Jesus, then you have to recognize why he came. Jesus said, I must come. I must be lifted up because the penalty for your sins must be paid. You see, God is life. He is the author and the origin of life. And when you disconnect from God, you disconnect from life and the consequence of disconnecting from life shouldn't be surprising it's death the bible says in romans chapter 6 the wages of sin is death sin produces death and we're all sinners which means we all deserve death and the only way we can ever connect back to god is for some sinless substitute to die in our place that's why jesus came Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For centuries they were offering these animals as a sacrifice to, 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 to push back their sins and cover their sins. But it was just pointing to something. Because in reality, the blood of animals for the sins of mankind is not justice. Therefore, when Christ came into the world... He said, so basically this is what Jesus said before he came into the world, right before he was born. He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. You see, there is nothing about the death of Jesus that was accidental. It was not God's plan B. God didn't have to make it up on the fly. Love took him to a crib, knowing it would take him to a cross. It took him to the place 
where he could take our place. God sent his one and only son and he knew where love must take him because God loves you to death. And he was willing to go to hell and back so that you could go to heaven and stay. And so the verse right after John 3.16 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now understand that condemnation is a possibility. To live your life and to face eternity with your back turned to God is a choice and a possibility. But it doesn't have to be a reality. Because this love that would do whatever it takes and go wherever he needed to go is a love that came to offer the gift of forever life. John 3.16 says that eternal life is a reality that we can experience. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but they will have eternal life. And, and listen, eternal life is not simply a place that we go to. It's not just heaven. Really, eternal life is a person. Listen to how Jesus described it and explained it. He prays this in John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life. Okay, so Jesus is about to tell us what eternal life is. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, God is the originator, the author of life. To be alive, you must be connected to God. And when you are connected to God, you begin to you begin to live a kind of life that, that you can't lose because God is forever. God is, is eternal. And so God is offering this life through Jesus and sealed by the Spirit, a quality of life that cannot be intimidated. It cannot be conquered. It cannot be dismissed. It cannot be frustrated. It cannot be finished, not even by death. And he's not saying that, that this is just something that's going to happen after you die and in the future. He's saying that God's offering you a kind of life right now that nothing in the future can stop. Not even death. That God wants to live in an intimate relationship with you. His life flowing through you, his communication with you, his revelation to you, his guidance in you, the assurance of his love over you. This is the kind of life that God wants to give you, not just eternal then and there, but here and now. Isn't that something to get excited about? You see, John 3.16 reminds us that we're not irrelevant accidents destined for nothingness. The reason John 3.16 matters is because it says you matter. You matter to God. In just a few words, one verse says best what we need to hear most. But perhaps the best word in the verse is the word whoever. Whoever. It's a great word. I remember one of my favorite parts about Christmas every year, but especially when we were younger, is something my mom uh, used to make, and she still makes them, but they're called cream cheese braids. I love them. They are amazing. And so my mom would make them every year, 
But she'd also make them for other people. That's, you know, she made a whole lot for other people. And so there'd be times where she'd be making them around Christmas time and she's making them and she's got them out on the countertop and they're cooling out on the countertop. And my brother and I and my dad would come and we'd ask, okay, well, you know, can, can we have some of these? Who are these for? And she'd say, well, no, these are, these are for so-and-so and, and these are for so-and-so. And we'd be so disappointed in the moment because we love cream cheese braids and we just wanted to eat all of them. But we knew there would come a time. At some point, because she wasn't ruthless, right? You know, she, she didn't just make them for everybody else. We knew there'd come a time when, when there'd be some cream cheese braids out on the countertop. And, and we'd ask, we'd come in and we'd smell them. And we'd ask mom, well, who, who are these for? And she'd say the long, words we long to hear. Oh, whoever. They're for whoever. Man, that's a good word. Whoever is a wonderful Word. And yet the reality is, though, that we don't really live in a whoever world. Life apart from God doesn't operate by the whoever principle. For instance, let me illustrate. How many of you remember uh, elementary science class? And at some point during that, maybe it was late elementary, early um, middle school, I don't, I don't remember exactly, but do you remember having to do like the, the model of the planets? I remember having to do that. We made them out of styrofoam and we spray painted them and, you know, hooked them all together with wires and had to do this, you know, this model of, uh, of the planets. And when we did them, you, you went all the way from Mercury to Pluto, right? Well, nowadays, if your children were to do that, I don't know if they have to do that anymore. I don't think Mealy has had to do that yet. But uh, if your children had to do that, now they would, instead of going from Mercury to Pluto, they would go from Mercury to Neptune. You say, well, what happened to Pluto? Well, several years ago, some some scientists in Prague determined that Pluto doesn't really deserve to be called a planet. And so they basically deplaneted Pluto. They downgraded Pluto to a minor planet, a dwarf planet, basically a glorified asteroid, and gave it the number 134340. Poor little Pluto, just minding his own business, going around the sun like he's always done. Then one day he shows up at Planet Club and they say, well, you you can't come in. You're not part of the club anymore, right? You ever been Pluto? My guess is that we all have at some point or another. You, you thought you were in. You thought you were a part. You wanted to be included. But you see, life doesn't operate by the whoever principle. Life operates by the principle of appearance and performance. Are you the prettiest or handsomest? Do you win the most? Do you score the most? Did you sell the most? Did you, do you own the most? Do you have the most likes on Facebook and Instagram and whatever? And in a world like that, at some point or another, most of us are going to wind up unappreciated, unnoticed, uninvited, and unwanted. But John 3.16 says that's not how God sees the world. And that's not how God sees you. Christmas says that the one and only came with a message that could be summed up in one word. Whoever. Jesus, you know, he loved that word. Just a chapter later in John chapter four, he was talking to a woman at a well who'd basically been kicked out of the club. And here's what he told her. Whoever drinks of the water I give them 
will never thirst. Later, he was talking to a big crowd of people who had lived on the margins all their lives. And this is what he said to them in John 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And maybe best of all is what he says to a grieving sister at her brother's funeral in John chapter 11, verse 26, when he says, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. God does whoever. His love is not just for a certain people or for a certain part of the world. And so in a certain part of the world, the one and only was born. He was willing to do whatever it took and go wherever he needed to go to offer forever life to whoever would believe. Whoever truly is a wonderful word. But to hear it, you're going to have to stop listening to another word. However, everybody in this uh, who's listening right now uh, online has been stung by the word, however. Well, you know, we, we know you'd like to go to our school, however, your grades aren't good enough. We know you want to be in our club or on our team or be our friend, but however, you didn't make the cut. We know you need this job, however, you don't have enough experience. You know who loves the word however? The devil. Jesus described the devil, and one of the descriptions he said of the devil is that he is a liar. And the devil loves to begin his lies with the word, however. I know you've heard that grace is amazing, but however, that doesn't really mean you. I know they say that, that God loves the whole world. However, that amazing grace you talk about isn't, isn't enough to cover up what you've done. I know the church says that they'll accept anybody, but however, they don't know about your past. I know they say, just come to Jesus. However, Jesus doesn't really want you. Not, not after what you've done. So here's the deal. You've got to choose a word. What narrative are you going to live by? What word are you going to choose? Because Christmas says that God accepts you whenever you're willing, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done. Christmas says whoever trumps however. So let me close with a story from the world of sports. Many of you know I'm a huge sports fan, so of course I'd close with that any chance I get. But only one NFL team has ever gone to four straight Super Bowls, um, four years in a row, gone to four Super Bowls four years in a row. That team was the Buffalo Bills of the 1990s. Sadly, they lost all four times. They did not win one single one of them. But their best chance to win was actually the very first one. It was in 1991. They were playing the New York Giants, and it was a great 
game, back and forth. And with just a few seconds left on the clock, the Giants were up by one point, but the Bills had the ball and they were on the Giants' 29-yard line, well within field goal range for their kicker. And so they had a chance to kick that field goal to win the game. And so the Bills sent out their kicker, kicker by the name of Scott Norwood, who's actually a really good kicker, had a great year, was a very solid kicker, and the kick was well within his range. And so they snapped the ball. The snap was good. The hold was good. The kick was long enough, but he missed. He missed. And they lost the game. The weight of a team, the weight of a city fell on his shoulders. And yet, to their surprise, when they returned home to Buffalo the next day, despite losing the game, there were 25,000 fans who had come to celebrate them, even despite their loss. Now, the last thing Scott Norwood, the kicker who missed it, wanted to do was to face anybody. And so he stood at the back behind all of his teammates so that no one could see him. And that's when it started. 25,000 people began to chant, we want Scott, we want Scott. Unexpected and unprepared, they put a mic in his hand and he said, I know that I have never felt more loved than I do right now. You see, when people know your however and they still want you, you know that you are loved. And that's the story of Christmas. And so today, you need to claim your citizenship in Whoville. John 3.16 is perhaps the best verse ever. And you need to write your name in it, whoever you are.